Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today's podcast is a creepy one. Yay. About a woman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes and no. I mean, it's creepy, but it's also horrible. Uh, it's about a woman who had no medical training, but called herself a doctor. And she had an uncanny ability to inspire a total devotion in her patients to the point that they would sign over all their money to her and their jewelry. They would make her their legal guardian. They would will her all of their stuff. And they did this even as she was literally starving them to death in a sanitarium in rural Washington. If that sounds disturbing to you, that's your heads up. Her name was Dr. Linda Hazard, the doctor part being basically made up. And the health facility that she ran was in Olala, which is across the Puget Sound from Seattle. This property was originally called Wilderness Heights, but locals came to call it Starvation Heights. So this episode is a listener request from Sarah, Sierra, Anne, and probably some other people. And then Heather requested it while I was about halfway through the research. Yeah, that was fortuitous <laughs> timing on Heather's part. I know. <laughs> uh, Linda Hazard was born Linda Burfield in Carver County, Minnesota in 1867. She got married at about the age of 18 and she had two children. However, in 1898, when she would have been 30 or 31, she left that family and she moved to Minneapolis to pursue a career in alternative medicine. The, quote, natural remedy that she advocated was fasting. The idea that you can improve your health through fasting is not new. Cultures all over the world have promoted temporary fasting for both health and religious purposes for basically most of human history. And of course, there are famous stories of mystics and ascetics and people on hunger strikes who fasted for a lot longer than that. Today, there are even some studies to suggest that short-term fasting might actually have some health benefits. Um, And the same is true of like a longer-term, lower-calorie diet. A lot of this research is pretty much in the category of preliminary, but worth studying further. But none of this that we're talking about, these studies that have happened, are really related to what Linda Hazard was doing. Her patients would subsist on a couple of ounces of broth for extended periods of time. They would undergo a percussive massage that some witnesses described as more akin to a beating. And there were enemas that took hours. They were meant to cleanse the colon of impacted matter and of bile that Hazard claimed was generated by the fasting process. By 1902, after she'd moved to set up shop in Minneapolis, Linda Hazard and her first husband had divorced. And that same year, a patient in her care died of what the coroner determined to be starvation. The coroner actually advocated charging Hazard, Uh, for this death, but because of a legal loophole, the fact that she wasn't actually a doctor meant she could not be held accountable for what seemed like a clear result of her so-called medical treatments. She had withheld food from that patient, and that patient had died. Also in the early 1900s, she met Samuel Christian Hazard, who she would go on to marry. He was a graduate of West Point who had been married twice, although at least one of those marriages had not been legally dissolved at the time that he married Linda. So Sam Hazard wound up on trial for bigamy in 1904 and was sentenced to two years in prison. Although the rest of this podcast is mostly focused on Linda, Sam was her accomplice, especially when it came to getting control over patients' money. 
Relevant to that piece of the story, he was also a graduate of West Point who misappropriated military funds, which ended his career in the Army. In 1906, after Sam got out of prison, he and Linda moved to the Pacific Northwest. Linda established an office in Seattle and began treating patients via fasting. Because she had already established this practice, when the state of Washington began to require doctors to have licenses to practice medicine, she was able to get one. She and other natural practitioners who were already working in the area were allowed to uh, just claim a license and continue to practice. Soon, she started planning a sanitarium on a 40-acre property that was owned by state legislator Louis E. Rader, who was a patient of hers. That was the property that was known as Wilderness Heights. In 1908, she self-published a book called The Fasting Cure for Disease. There are at least five editions of this book, and all of the ones that Tracy found started with, quote, Appetite is craving, hunger is desire. Craving is never satisfied, but desire is relieved when want is supplied. Eating without hunger or pandering to appetite at the expense of digestion makes disease inevitable. At the start of the editions of the book, she also thinks thanks E.H. Dewey, who was another proponent of fasting for medical purposes. And she claims to have studied with him, although it's not clear whether that really happened. Here are some of the things she advocated, all taken from the 1908 edition of the book. First, she claimed that fasting could not kill you. Quote, popular belief and medical teaching lead to the conclusion that abstinence from food for 10 or 12 days will result in starvation or death. This is easily refuted. On my lists are considerably over 1,000 instances of continuous fasts whose limits extend from 10 to 75 days. She goes on to write, in 12 years, only 11 patients have died while under my care. Each of these deaths has proved an occasion for persecution, malignment, prosecution, and injury. From each and every case, both I and the method have emerged triumphant. The autopsy showing organic disease and that death was inevitable. So basically she was saying it was never the fasting that killed you. It was the underlying illnesses that you were treating with fasting. And uh, as a side note, in terms of saying that the autopsies revealed that an underlying disease caused the death, these were autopsies she conducted herself. Handy. Uh, in her description, you need to rest your digestive system, just like you need to rest your legs after you go for a long run. Also, according to her, food is poison. At this point, I would close the book on Linda Hazard and bid her adieu. <laughs> Uh, disease, according to her, was a product of your body being out of balance, and fasting restored that balance. Without food to deal with, your kidneys and your liver could go on doing their jobs, but this time they would really purify your body and your blood, not just play catch-up based on what you ate. She goes on to make a lot of the same claims that come up in quackery cases today. She claims that drugs are poison and that traditional medicine is dying and that you can treat literally anything with the right natural cure. And in spite of her insistence that fasting could not kill you, like she very cavalierly admitted in her own book, a lot of her patients did die. And we're going to talk about some of that after a brief word from one of our great sponsors. To return to the story of Linda Hazard, she attracted the same sorts of patients who visited other sanitariums and health reform centers in the 19th and early 20th centuries. For the most part, these were people who were affluent. They had lots of leisure time, and they didn't feel quite well. However, at most of these places, 
including the past podcast subject, Battle Creek Sanitarium, which was run by John Harvey Kellogg. Patients did not die from their treatments. That was not the case with Linda Hazard. Daisy Maud Hagland was a Seattle-area patient, originally from Norway, and she died on February 26th of 1908 after a 50-day fast under Linda Hazard's care. Uh, she was 38, and she left behind a young son, Ivor, who grew up to start the Seattle seafood chain Ivers, uh, which is mentioned in just about every article that you see about this whole event. Yeah, I can't I can't quite figure out whether people mention it invariably because that restaurant chain is really famous in Seattle or because it seems kind of ironic that his mother died of starvation and then he grew up to start a famous restaurant chain. Probably a combination of the two. In 1909, a decomposing body was found on the Hazard's property, and it was later identified as belonging to Eugene Stanley Wakelin, who was 26. The cause of death was a bullet wound to the head. He was another one of Hazard's patients, and his death was originally reported as a suicide. However, later on, the British vice consul theorized that one of the Hazards had actually shot him after learning that in spite of being the son of a British lord, he did not actually have a lot of money, for them to extort from him. So these and other deaths did indeed attract attention. Seattle newspapers covered these incidents as they came up, and local residents reported finding wandering, severely emaciated people on their property looking for help. But the state of Washington didn't yet have any kind of laws governing medical malpractice. That wouldn't happen until 1913. So when people were dying in Hazard's care after undergoing treatment that they had apparently willingly signed up for, and in some cases even supposedly signed legal documents authorizing, authorities didn't feel like there was really much that they could do. That changed with British sisters Claire and Dorothea Williamson. Dorothea, who was known as Dora, was 37, and Claire was 34. Both of their parents had died, but their father, who had been an army officer, had left them enough money for the two of them to be quite comfortable. And they were both very interested in their health. They were vegetarians, and they had stopped wearing corsets. Both of these decisions were motivated by a belief that the things that they were turning away from were bad for them. And neither of them considered themselves to be in the best of health. Dorothea, Dora, as we had mentioned, quote, suffered occasionally from rheumatism and indigestion, according to court documents. Claire reportedly had a displaced uterus, and they'd taken a number of natural cures to try to feel better. Their family did not approve, so they just stopped telling their aunts and uncles what they were up to. I could not figure out whether Claire legitimately had an actual physical uh, like misplacement in her uterus. Like That is a thing that can happen. But also, weird non-problems with women's uteruses were often part of medical quackery in the, in the yes. especially 19th century. And I, I could not figure out which one of those two things that was. In September of 1910, the two sisters were visiting Victoria, British Columbia, and they saw an ad for Linda Hazard's sanitarium in a Seattle newspaper that their hotel had on hand. Claire wrote to Hazard for more information, and Hazard forwarded a copy of her book and a brochure about the sanitarium. The Williamsons thought that Hazard Sanitarium sounded ideal for them. They envisioned this as an idyllic retreat where they would be sustained by delicate broths made from locally farmed ingredients. So they kept up a correspondence with Hazard that lasted through February of 1911. They had originally planned to leave the United States, 
bound for Britain and Australia, but they decided instead to stop first in Seattle and undertake Hazard's Cure. When they arrived in Seattle on February 26th of 1911, they found that the Institute was not ready to receive patients yet. Hazard instead got them an apartment in Seattle's Capitol Hill, and they each agreed to pay her $60 per month for Monday to Friday treatments that would include, in the words of documents uh, included in Hazard's appeal, quote, massage or rubbing, the abstaining from food except fruit juice, asparagus water, and vegetable broth with a small bit of butter therein about as large as the thumbnail, a warm bath every day or practically every day, and an enema from four to six quarts of warm water each day. This diet also was not the farm-fresh, locally-sourced fare that they had been hoping for. It was mostly made from canned tomatoes. The sisters went from their apartment to Hazard's Seattle office Monday to Friday, as agreed, from February 27th until about the 15th of March. And at that point, they became too weak to be able to leave their apartment. So Hazard came to them, giving them their multi-hour enemas in the bathtub, which was fitted with canvas supports once their treatments made them too weak to stand. As the two sisters got weaker, Hazard started to ask them about their family, their money, their jewelry, their legal affairs. She took all of their jewelry and their personal papers with her when she left one day, telling them that it was not safe to keep such things in their apartment. The Williamson sisters' treatment in Seattle went on until April 22, 1911, when they were transferred to Olala. And it still wasn't a sanitarium so much as a space in the Olala home. Their health at this point was precarious enough that they each were carried to a separate ambulance by stretcher, and once they got to the sound, they were taken across in a private boat. Before they left, though, Hazard's attorney arrived at the dock and got Claire to sign a will that left an annuity to the sanitarium, as well as documents that signed all the money in her bank account over to Hazard. At this point, the two sisters reportedly each weighed only about 70 pounds. After their move to Alala, their health, of course, continued to deteriorate. They started to lose consciousness during their massages and their enema treatments. One of them sent their childhood nurse, Margaret Conway, an odd telegram on April 30th of that year, asking her to come and visit them in Alala. She was alarmed by this telegram and worried for their safety, so she left Australia and took a ship to Vancouver. It would take her until June to get to Seattle. Meanwhile, in mid-May, Hazard expressed doubt that Claire Williamson would recover, not from the treatment, but from the ailments that the treatment was supposedly purging from her body. And on May 19th of 1911, Claire did indeed die. Hazard waited three days to inform their uncle, John Herbert, who lived in Portland and who she already knew how to contact, that his niece had died. At this point, she and her sister each weighed about half of what they had before starting Hazard's treatments. On May 27th, Hazard filed a petition to to be made Dora's legal guardian, claiming that she was an invalid and mentally incompetent to manage her own affairs. This petition was granted. Also in May, Louis E. Rader, who was the person who had owned the property that this sanitarium was built on, also died. He, as we said, had been a patient of Hazard's. He had been staying in a hotel near Pike Place Market in Seattle, but when the police tried to question him about what was going on at his old Wilderness Heights property, Hazard moved him someone else, somewhere else in secret, where he later died. When Margaret Conway arrived in Seattle on June 1st, Hazard's husband, Samuel Hazard, 
broke the news that Claire was dead as they rode a bus to Conway's hotel. Upon seeing her body, which had been embalmed and placed on display at Butterworth Mortuary in Seattle, Conway was immediately suspicious that something was going on. This body did not look like Claire to her, and it wasn't just because it was almost skeletal. It was because the bone structure of the body itself didn't look like Claire's to her. The bones in the hands and the face were shaped all wrong, and her hair was a different color. Then Conway went to Olala, where she found that Dora only weighed about 50 pounds and was so emaciated that she couldn't even sit without serious pain. In spite of her obvious, horrible physical condition, Dora refused to leave. Plus, as we alluded to earlier, the Williamson sisters had at this point signed away everything they had to the hazards. In addition to being named Dora's guardian, Linda Hazard had been named the executor of Claire's estate, and her husband had power of attorney over Dora. Linda Hazard had also started wearing the sisters' clothing and jewelry, including when she met with their childhood nurse, Conway. Conway immediately sent for John Herbert, who came to see what was going on. And only after he agreed to pay the Hazards $1,000, which was negotiated down from their initial demand of $2,000, did they allow Dora to leave. It's not clear whether this was a bill or some sort of ransom. Conway nursed the surviving Williamson sister back to health. At this point, the deaths by starvation under the care of Linda Hazard were really well known in the Seattle area. Articles in the Seattle Daily Times were running under headlines like woman, air quote, MD, air quote, kills another patient. But as we said earlier, authorities did not feel like they had uh, the jurisdiction to put a stop to it which is why John Herbert took the matter to the British consul in Tacoma. The British government started to pressure Kitsap County, Washington, to charge Hazard with murder. The county was small and rural, and when it claimed it couldn't afford such an expensive legal proceeding, Dorothea Williamson offered to pay for it. We're going to talk about the trial and what happened afterward after another brief word from one of our great sponsors. So... Linda Hazard was finally arrested on August 15th, 1911. She was charged with first-degree murder and the death of Claire Williamson, and the trial began the following January. Nurses and servants from the household testified about horrifying conditions at the Alala Sanitarium. Witnesses also spoke about the way the Hazards had gotten their patients to hand over all their assets. The prosecution framed this as, quote, financial starvation. There were also numerous instances of fraud in which both hazards had forged documents and faked diary entries to get money and possessions that their patients would not give them willingly. Some of these documents that were saying that they that people were willingly under hazards care had in fact been forged. The Butterworth mortuary where Claire Williamson's body had been displayed was accused of collusion as well. It was never proved, but accusations were made that the mortuary had swapped Claire's body for one that was not quite so skeletal. Throughout all of this, Linda Hazard maintained her innocence. Regardless of how little a patient had eaten or how clearly their cause of death was starvation, in Hazard's assertion, it was not the fasting that did it. She also claimed that she was being unfairly persecuted and that this was the reason that she was being accused of murder, not because of having starved patients to death. And this continues to be true in quackery cases that uh, that come up today. The the people on trial will, will claim that they are being unjustly persecuted by the medical establishment when really they are the ones who have the real answers. 
She refused to take the stand in her own defense, saying it was because the jury was all male and that if they had been women, she would have done it. Other purveyors of natural cures agreed with Hazard that she was not to blame. Henry S. Tanner, who was known for a public 40-day fast in New York City more than 30 days before all of this business, offered to testify for the defense, but he was never called. Although Hazard was found guilty, it was ultimately of manslaughter, not of first-degree murder. Her medical license was revoked, and she was sentenced to prison in the state penitentiary at Walla Walla for, quote, not more than 20 years and not less than two years. She served two years of her sentence, spending much of that time fasting in an attempt to prove that she was really innocent. She also tried to appeal, citing 12 different purported instances of errors and misconduct at her previous trial. And we're going to link to all of uh, this appeal in our show notes because it is a dizzying read in your most clear-headed states. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Yes, it was too dizzying to try to, like, distill down to a podcast sentence. Yeah, you definitely want to have a a cup of coffee or whatever else wakes you up before you tackle that. Uh, August 12th of 1913, the state of Washington issued a ruling that her previous trial had in fact been fair. Extremely long story short, quote, considering the entire record in this case, it is clear that the defendant had a fair trial. Her attorneys were alert to protect her interests. There is substantial evidence to support the verdict of the jury. The trial court in imposing sentence tempered justice with mercy. The judgment will therefore be affirmed. After she was paroled and the governor pardoned her in exchange for a promise that she leave Washington, she did. She moved to New Zealand for a while, where a sizable group of people supported her and advocated her treatments. Then after a while, she moved back to Olala in 1920 with the intent of building a 100-bed school for health. She wound up in court again in the mid-1920s, having been fined for practicing medicine without a license. Her argument was that she had been pardoned by the governor and that the revocation of her license was part of the punishment that for having been convicted of manslaughter, but since she had been pardoned of that crime, she should have that license back. The court ruled that while some inalienable rights do revert to someone after a pardon, you have no intrinsic right to a license to practice medicine if you are not qualified to do it. Her institute burned down in 1935, and at that point, her popularity had really waned. There were only about a dozen patients being housed there. Hazard began a fast three years later after falling ill herself, and she never recovered. She died in 1938 at the age of 71. So you can read multiple editions of her book online for free because it's public domain now. Google Books has a scan of one of them that was donated to Harvard When I started reading it, I was like, why does this name of the person who owned this book sound so familiar to me? And then I was reading and I realized the original owner of the copy of the book that that was donated to Harvard that Google Books has scanned was Horace Fletcher, the great masticator, the guy who advocated chewing your food like a bajillion times until it just (laughs) kind of gloppily slid, slid down your throat. And there are a bunch of notes in the margin. I found them very disturbing because they're all about how Linda Hazard really has a point here. And I don't know if they're Horace Fletcher's notes or the notes of whoever got the book from him because he himself is not the person who made the donation to Harvard. But, yeah, that was the most disturbing thing that I read uh, in this. Like, there are all these accounts of these horrible things that happened in her sanitarium. But the thing that uh, that really creeped me out the most 
was whoever was writing in the margins saying that all of these things she was writing, which are made up and wrong, were in fact great. Yeah, that's troubling for sure. Uh, although some of the outbuildings and the smaller structures from the Institute still stand, all that's left of the main buildings are the foundation and a concrete tower that may have housed an incinerator. A cottage that had housed some of the patients was purchased by a private citizen about 30 years ago, and its history was not disclosed to the buyers. Because some of the bodies were reportedly burned, buried in the woods, or dumped into the sound, there's actually no official death toll. Numbers range from a dozen to more than 40. There's also a whole book about it, written by somebody who actually lives in the Olala area, which is aptly named Starvation Heights. Oh, Linda Hazard. Obviously, I have no patience for her medical quackery. Well, and it's one of those things. Um, I lived in the Pacific Northwest when I was a kid, and I do vaguely remember one of my parents making sort of a macabre joke when I didn't want to eat something on my plate at one point, saying, like, do you think this is a Linda Hazard treatment? <laughs> Were you like, what is that about? Yeah, I had no idea. And then later on, as I got older, it's one of those things that does come up if you live there. Uh, you'll eventually hear stories of it. And I was like, oh, oh, everything is illuminated. Now I understand that that sort of creepy joke that was made at the dinner table. Yeah, well, I don't know if we've ever talked on the show before about how I spent some years of my life as a licensed massage therapist. Uh, And I, I worked with a lot of people who were great, who were just basically about feeling better and 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 having a good degree of wellness and then there were a few people who I worked with who were not, and they would advocate these things that were dangerous and damaging. And I was like, I can't, that, I, no, <laughs> that's not okay to be telling people, uh, is true about their health. That is, in fact, harmful. Um, and one of the things I was most relieved about when I ceased to be a licensed massage therapist was, uh, the people who were advocating things that are quackery and are either outright dangerous and damaging to people or give people false hope for something that's not actually going to help them with a serious illness. Yeah, those are uh, troubling. And I, I find they happen in, uh, they, they span out. They're not just in things like massage, but like if you go to an esthetician, even like in the beauty industry, <laughs> there yeah. are a lot of treatments that will be uh, purported as very natural and curative in some way of some, you know, like a skin condition or you know, whatever. And they're really just products being sold to make dollars. Yeah. My worst skincare experience of my entire life was uh, an, uh, an all-natural thing that one of the places I worked was selling that I tried because I bought this whole idea that maybe my skin would not break out if I only put this natural stuff on it. And what really happened was that my skin broke out worse than it ever had been in my entire life. And representatives of that company told me it was my fault for clearly being a sensitive person. Huh. Well, that's, yep. a, that's the thing to remember. Not all natural remedies. That doesn't always mean they're gentle and soothing either. There are lots of things yeah. in the natural world that can <laughs> hurt you. Yep. So anyway, Linda Hazard, I obviously murdered a whole bunch of people, and then I also am intolerant of her medical quackery. There you go. Do you also have some listener mail for us? I do. It is from Jason, and Jason says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. 
Thanks so much for including a classical music episode in Stuff You Missed in History class. I was excited to finally hear about a subject area that I'm particularly passionate about as I'm a classically trained composer. Yes, we still exist. I wanted to address a point that you seem to struggle with regarding the reasoning why classical musicians tend to make Liszt out to be a better performer than composer. I think you touched on an important point when you mentioned jealousy. Certainly, haters of any era are going to hate. But there is more prominent or at least more openly cited reason for Liszt's not quite first-rate status as a composer, which is unique to classical music's value system. In our musical tradition, there is an accepted divide between the piece and the performance, a concept uh, which today's musical traditions make little distinction over. When you think about classical music, it makes sense. Performer A can be can play a piece by composer B, and we can judge the merits of these elements independently. Mary Jones did a great job playing Beethoven's third piano sonata, Opus 2, number 3. That piece is wonderful. Consider similar praise awarded to a popular music group. I love the Beatles song, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Even if Liszt were performing his own compositions, he wouldn't be evaluated as the singer-songwriter, but separately as a composer and performer. How does this attitude apply to the reception of Liszt's compositions? When classical musicians look at pieces by Liszt, they see a lot of what makes the late romantic piano style great. An expressive sense of drama, a use of all the ranges of the piano, and textures resembling a bazillion notes flying by at breakneck pace. But when we are also trained to look through all the notes to an underlying musical structure beneath the surface of the music, you're not familiar with music theory or have no classical music training, this can be a difficult concept to articulate in an email. He provides a link for a little bit of context, which is that some folks take issue with the integrity of his work. What the haters hate about Liszt's music is that there is a decidedly performative focus on his music, contrary to the customary preference for the architectural focus. To put it bluntly, the haters feel that Liszt's music is all sizzle, no steak. People dismiss his music because of the obvious virtuosity demonstrated in its performance, considering it gaudy. I like to think of it as musical wasps versus the nouveau riche. Compared to a similar piece by Brahms, whose piano music is also virtuistic in its own right, it doesn't feel as enriching, say, the haters. Luckily, Liszt's music has been getting a fairer shake in more recent years. He did a lot to advance the classical music's harmony, as you noted in the podcast, although I thought your use of the term avant-garde was inappropriate. That refers to a very specific period of music decades later. Consider this piece by Liszt, and he has a link to it, which explores the non-cast classical scales and bends harmony to just before it breaks. Uh, And then he says he hopes that we do some more pieces on classical music and offers some resources in case that we do. So thank you, Jason, for sending that uh, email. I actually did look up avant-garde and whether it was appropriate to use <laughs> before I said that in the podcast. And the thing that I had found um, talked about Vod- Wagner being considered an avant-garde musician. And since we also talked about Vod- Wagner in the episode, uh, I did not think that was incorrect. So apparently it was. But otherwise, thank you for sending all of that context that I did not... Uh, have when we did that uh, when we did that episode if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast we're at history podcast at howstuffworks.com we're also on facebook at facebook.com slash history and on twitter at history. we are on tumblr at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we're on pinterest at pinterest.com slash history. If you would like to learn more about what we have talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. You can put the word quackery 
in the search bar and you will find 10 instances of quackery throughout medical history. You can also come to our website, which is missinghistory.com. You'll find show notes for all of the episodes Holly and I have worked on, an archive of all the episodes ever, lots of other cool stuff. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 